This is Hamlet to Hamilton, Exploring Verse Drama. I'm your host, Emily C.A. Snyder. You're listening to Season 3, Episode 12, Discovering Character Through Line Breaks, Part 1. To be. To be. not to be. To be or not to be. That is the question. Hello, friends, and welcome back. This is season three. For those of you just joining us, we are looking at the question of how to write soliloquy. In the first half of this season, of this semester, we were defining different types of soliloquy, and so you can go back and certainly listen to that. Most recently, this half of the season of the semester, we are looking at how to write our own soliloquies. Last time, we looked particularly at repeated meter and how that can differentiate or help you to find your character voice. We've also talked about sort of the transitions in and out of soliloquy. But one of the things that I'm finding as uh, your requests are coming in of what you would like us to focus on next and today's uh, episode or series of episodes is by request, uh, which we love from one of our patrons on Patreon. You can join us over there at patreon.com slash Hamlet to Hamilton. Other ways to help us that don't cost you any dinero is to tell your friends, your foes, to give us a shout out on <laughs> the social media platform that is existing <laughs> at the moment we are on Twitter. Uh, we'll see whether that survives. We are recording this in November of 2022, and uh, Elon Musk is currently working on murdering that social media platform. But we are on Twitter at Hamlet2Hamilton with a number two in between. You can always also email us at Hamlet to Hamilton, all spelled out, all one word, no numbers at all, at gmail.com. And we are happy to hear from you. We are also on Facebook uh, for, for what it's worth. So you could contact us there as well. And that's Hamlet to Hamilton, all spelled out, no numbers as well. But as we are getting into the writing of soliloquy, really kind of what we're getting into is the writing of character. And since this podcast is focused on verse drama, we are going to be focusing particularly on how the tools of verse can help us explore character. Character, which frequently is the subject of why we're even doing a soliloquy, is to reveal character. And so what I'm getting at is some of what we're going to be looking at today is not always going to be pure soliloquy. We are going to be looking a little bit more generally today about finding your character through using line breaks. Now, we have covered performing line breaks uh, in in seasons past. So I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to season one, episodes six and seven, which are entitled Whose Line Ending Is It Anyway? and What's My Line Ending? I would also encourage you, because we're going to be talking a little bit about silences, to listen to season one, episode 10, which is Silences, Spacing, Stage Direction, and Shared Lines. Now, season one was looking at the tool boudoir, the basic skills of writing verse drama. 
And today I will be talking about the tool boudoir. Again, we're, we're fancy. <laughs> we don't need a toolbox. We'll have a whole tool boudoir. Um, so if you're lost at any point, you can go back, listen to the correct episode of season one. You can also go to the website hamlettohamilton.com. Again, all spelled out, no numbers in between. hamlettohamilton.com which we are slowly updating, but all of season one is there. And all of season one also has transcripts. So if it's easier for you to read these ramblings, you can certainly do so. The other episode that I would suggest you listen to is from season two, wherein we looked at King Arthur-inspired verse plays in Anglophone verse drama from 1587 through to 2019. And the one that I would suggest you listen to is Season 2, Episode 9, King Arthur and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Play. Because bless that author, bless that author, and again, the author Stark Young, who was writing in 1906, really went on to have a, a lovely life, has gone on to his uh, his peace now he is fine. He is well. <laughs> and uh, he 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 did terrible line endings. And we're extremely grateful for those terrible line endings, for those Shatner or Christopher Walken-esque line endings, which you will hear myself, Colin Kovarik, and Nick Ritako, who played Lancelot, um, tr trying to get through. <laughs> it is an excellent, excellent warning. And we thank Stark Young for his service to verse drama. So I would give that uh, the, all those episodes uh, a listen if you want more context. I am even labeling today's episode as part one, as I know that there's going to be more to say. So let's dive into the questions that we were given that have kicked off this mini-series about discovering character through line breaks. We were given this question by one of our patrons on Patreon, but through Twitter, from Monica Cross, whomst we stan. Monica is a verse playwright and is just a fantastic human being. You can find Monica's work over on New Play Exchange. I highly recommend looking up all of those plays. They are great. And what Monica asked was, there was a quest to look at line endings in an upcoming episode. Mazel tov, here we are. And then, as Monica wrote, I was specifically thinking about diving in deeper on the subject of showing a character's thought process through line endings, looking at how line endings can clue us into the character's state of mind. Like, what does it do to a character if all of their thoughts are end-stopped? What happens when a character stops themselves from talking? This might also be an interesting place to explore crossed out text and how that affects lines and their endings. Or what can we do with line endings to show a change in state of mind or thought mid-speech? Like what happens if a character whose thoughts spill over the lines constantly suddenly begins end stopping their lines or vice versa? I'm gonna read that whole thing again because in many ways, Monica, I think you have created the, the perfect questionnaire. 
So let's go through this again. And all of you writers out there, but also all of you actors, directors, dramaturgs, let's ask these questions one more time. This is going to be true in soliloquy. It's going to be true just looking at a character and how we that character themselves employs the end and the beginning of lines. So I'm going to read it once more. I want you to think about your own characters, whether you're enacting them, directing them, writing them, so on. So Monica writes on Twitter, and you can see uh, Monica at The Roaring Girl. So at The Roaring Girl on Twitter, Monica writes, I was specifically thinking about diving in deeper on the subject of showing a character's thought process through line endings, looking at how line endings can clue us into character state of mind. So here are the questions now. Like, what does it do to a character if all of their thoughts are end stopped? I'll repeat that. What does that do to your character if all of those characters' thoughts are end stopped? That means that the end of the verse line is equivalent to the end of a thought or the end of a phrase. So what does it do to a character, Monica asks, if all of their thoughts are end stopped? What happens when a character stops themselves from talking? I'll ask that again. What happens if the line break occurs because the character is stopping themselves from talking? And this is where, uh, as Monica writes, this might be an interesting place to explore crossed out text, how that affects lines and their endings. So what happens if the line break occurs because the character is stopping themselves from talking? They're self-censoring. Or are there other reasons why a character might stop themselves from talking, from continuing on a thought, and instead turn it or just stop? All right. Monica goes on. What can we do with line endings to show a change in state of mind or thought mid-speech? So this is continuing on from the previous question of crossed out lines or stopping themselves from talking. What can we do with line endings to show a change in the state of mind or thought mid-speech? I think actually this is two different things because line endings can show, uh, you know, if a character goes from all end stopped to suddenly all open ended or enjammed or silenced uh, line endings, that tells us something, right? And it will tell us something if it changes in the middle of a speech or if it changes from one scene to another. So this can happen not just in a speech. This is why I think we're opening up to talk not just about soliloquy, but about a character's entire arc through a play. Do they begin and stopped? And then as crises happen, we're seeing more open-ended lines or even themselves censoring lines. And then do they come back to end stopped? We're going to be taking a look over the course of this little mini series of line breaks and character development at exactly that. Um, or of course it might go the other way. They begin very open-ended line endings and then they become very um, tightly strictured and only doing end-stopped lines and perfect thought. And then maybe they open up and blossom again. 
Okay, so let me just repeat Monica's question. What can we do with line endings to show a change in state of mind or thought mid-speech, or I would say over the course of a character's arc? Monica goes on, like what happens if a character whose thoughts spill over the lines constantly suddenly begins and stopping their lines or vice versa? So as we just spoke about. So... Monica just gave a little masterclass right there. I want to make sure that all of the credit for this little mini series and the jumping off thoughts uh, goes in the right direction. Thank you, Monica Cross. One more time, look up all of those plays on New Play Exchange. You're going to uh, get some really really good stuff. And congratulations. Uh, some of Monica's verse work has recently been chosen for uh, for a few different little festivals uh, or big festivals, actually. So go check them out on uh, The Roaring Girl. Monica is over there and you can see uh, all of her thoughts and works. It's great. Right. So let's get into these questions. And as always, we're going to begin from these questions. We're going to begin with some definitions. So our overarching theme, as I was thinking about this very big question, the overarching theme that I want you to take away from the last episode where we talked about meter and how to change your meter in order to change your character, which again goes back to, uh, so you think you know meter in season one where we talked about juxtapose meter. When we're talking about writing character arcs and using our tool boudoir, when we're talking about schwumpf, when we're talking about oeuvre, I'll go back and listen to those uh, and we have little mini shakes notes that you can also listen to the um, to define schwumpf, which is sort of the, the way thoughts all go together, schwumpf together on one line, and ouvriel, which is performative energy. Um, when we're thinking about all the little minuscule things that go into writing a play, all the stuff, all the tools in our tool boudoir, what actors and interpreters are looking for and what the audience is looking for, as there are three parts to drama. We are not writing page poetry. We are writing stage poetry. We are writing something where it is written, that's a generative phase, and then it is interpreted, and then it is received by the audience. And we must keep those three steps in mind. A performance is only complete when all three steps have been accomplished. We are writing in order to speak through interpreters to an audience and what all of the future human beings who are either interpreting or watching, receiving your work, what they are looking for, what humanity does is it creates patterns. We like patterns. We make patterns out of everything. That's half of what therapy is, is looking at the patterns that you made in your brain and taking them apart and saying, are these helpful patterns or are these patterns that we threw together for unhelpful reasons or do we need to reframe these patterns? 
In a play, in storytelling, we are looking for patterns. We are doing that same work in a character that we do for ourselves in therapy. We are looking for patterns and we are looking for the breaks in patterns. And that's why I think what Monica is kind of getting at here and what I hope all of you are taking away from every part of the tool boudoir is that it is helpful in the creation of a character arc. If we were to look at sort of a perfect three arc, you know, three beats way of storytelling, it's we establish a pattern, we break that pattern, we establish either the previous pattern or a new pattern, or we double down on the, the broken pattern, the pattern that broke. Um, and we can do that with the tools of our tool boudoir. A character, whether it's over the course of a whole play or the beginning of an act to an end of an act or the beginning of a soliloquy to the end of a soliloquy, we want these changes. We want patterns, then we want the pattern to break and we want it to break for a reason. And then we want a new pattern or we want new context regarding that pattern. And... We can do that through creating a meter, a strict repeated meter, and then breaking that meter, and then synthesizing or creating new or whatever whatever the new thing is. And we can repeat this pattern over and over of create, break, create, break, create, break, create, break, recreate, from that recreation, break, recreate, break. Do you get the idea, right? Um if we go back to a pattern the audience recognizes, it works the same as leitmotif in musicals and in operas, which is to say, if we create a pattern, such as, for example, we talked about in, I believe it's in the, um, so you think, you know, Scansion episode in season one, where in my play, The Other Other Woman, for example, the first solid half hour, 45 minutes, is all rhyming couplets. And so the audience hears that pattern, associates it with this is the world of the play. And then half an hour, 45 minutes in, we break that and I go into free verse, into blank verse, I should say, not free. Sorry, into blank verse. Um, sort of a loose pent, tetch, hexameter, anyway, sort of loosely. Um, but it's blank verse, it's unrhymed. And the audience hears the pattern break and they feel it. And now we have new vocabulary so that when at the end of that scene, we return to rhyme, the audience now contextualizes the pattern they've heard in a new way. Leitmotif is a pattern. Leitmotif is a pattern that we associate with something. So, for example, leitmotif is dun, 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 dun. And when you hear that, you expect to see stormtroopers and Darth Vader and bad guys, right? If you hear ba da 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 da, you expect to see Harry Potter, you expect to see owls. If you hear da 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 you expect to see Indiana Jones on a horse. All of these are are John Williams because he is the master of leitmotif. But um there's 
Marvel music that we know, because it's at the beginning of every Marvel TV show, and uh, it's a little bit harder to hum. It's a little bit less melodic, but you know it. That's what a leitmotif is. And we can do leitmotif, particularly with verse drama, because we just have more tools at our disposal. We, there is, although you can do this on paragraph form, but you can very much get into strict repeated meter so that it's not sung, it's spoken verse, but you can feel for example, or and when you break that meter, the audience feels it and they start making new meaning, new patterns. Line breaks are another great place to make pattern and break pattern. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, sort of making pattern, breaking pattern. Now, as promised, let's get some definitions in. So if you're just joining us, we'll do the too long, didn't listen um, definitions of what we've gone over before, as well as some new ideas that I'm going to float by you today. First, our understanding of verse, as we are talking about verse today, is that it is a line of text that includes an intentional line break, which is placed. So again, it is a line of text which includes a line break, which is intentionally put there. So it's not defined by the margin the way that paragraph form is, for example. This means it has a dynamic interplay with white space, which we can sometimes read as performative silence. Not always. Um, it depends on the type of verse. It depends on how you as an actor feel or what the interpreters think or want to do with white space. But it does make, it, it has the potential to make white space very dynamic. Regarding line breaks, I posit that for drama, there may actually be four different types. I'm playing with this. I'm playing with this. So see what you think. I think there might be four different types of line break. I'm taking a look at my notes here. And they are end stopped and jammed, silence stopped, and uh well, I guess I mean five, stage directions and interruptions. So I'll say those again, five different types possibly. See what you think. Again, this is, this is very early days. <laughs> Things might be rearranged. Let me know what you think. There are five ways in drama that I'm seeing thus far that we tend to have a line break. End is stopped lines and jammed lines, silence stopped, stage directions, and interruptions. Some of these can be true as well for paragraph form, um, particularly silent stopped, stage directions, and interruptions. Whereas, um, well, even end stopped, frankly, is in paragraph form, <laughs> to be entirely frank. And jammed, though, is the type that is very much tied to verse as a form. So what do each of these mean? Well, let me go back in my notebook here. Here we go. <laughs> end stopped 
means that the end of the line, either you've, you've got a couple different types. You have full stops or complete stops where the end of a line of verse ends with the complete end of the sentence. So it ends with a period, it ends with a question mark, it ends with an exclamation point. Um, and it, it, again, there may be, uh, these, these are just the punctuations that we use in Anglophone language, in English right now. Um, more punctuation is always possible. But the understanding is that the end of a full stop is going to be the end of a sentence. So an entire line will end with the end of the line. The thought, the line, the schwoomph, the sentence all end together in a complete full stop. But we also have partial stops, which are often marked by a comma, a semicolon, a colon. It's, I mean, you could possibly use a dash, but I want to get to that a little bit later. Um, partial stops are usually regarding phrases. And the author, again, has chosen to put in some sort of hesitant punctuation to let you know that the thought's continuing on, but this really is kind of a stopping place. Um, so it's a partial stop. It usually it has something to do with a phrase, that the end of the line happens to coincide with the end of a phrase. And then you can have basically implied phrase stops when the author may have chosen not to put in any punctuation at the end of the line other than the line break. But it's so natural in the way the line is written, in the way the line is phrased, in the way that, that language works, that this is an end of the phrase, even if there isn't a comma something like that. Like this is, this is just, this would be a normal place to, to breathe or to, to take a, some sort of stop. So the first type we have, the first sort of grouping of line endings include complete stops, fully end stopped. And uh, performatively, this often means with an end stop, it doesn't have to, but, but frequently the interpreters will take a breath at the end of the line if it is the end of a sentence. <gasps> like that. <gasps> or that. <gasps> you get the idea. Okay. And then we have enjambments. And this is a point of considerable contention. Uh, again, go back and listen to season one, line endings. Considerable contention about how to perform enjambments, what the purpose is. Now, one of the things that I'm learning as I'm learning more about page poetry is that um, page poets seem to just put in line breaks intentionally. It's, I'm going to be so rude, but it seems like to be cool. <laughs> just like this is what a poem looks like. So I guess I'm putting in a line break, um, which can be infuriating if you're like me and coming from the stage and going, no, but the line break needs to mean something. And more to the point, the line break needs to be effective performance information. So with enjambments, I highly suggest to the writers, um, although those who are interpreting may need to realize that, that the writer uh, did not give you a helpful enjambed line ending. An enjambment is when the end of the verse line does not have, it does not coincide with any sort of natural 
stop necessarily, but the thought, the line, the sentence absolutely spills over to the next line. Okay. So the line break is put in a place that is not necessarily sentence grammatically regarding phrases. It it doesn't coincide with that. It almost appears arbitrary. Um, the one that we talked about way back when in season one is from Winter's Tale, Playboy Play, Thy Mother Plays, and I is the line. Um, but the full sentence is, Playboy Play, Thy Mother Plays, and I Play Too. The line break is after I, is there playable information there? So that's a beautiful, beautifully enjammed line. And you could read it uh, just according to the punctuation which would be play boy play thy mother plays and i play too or you can do something with that enjambment as an interpreter such as play boy play thy mother plays and i play too play by play thy mother plays and i play too right okay that there's some sort of break or there's a reason there's an active performative reason to break there. Um, enjambment, though, can also be something where you kind of hit the end and it dashes you forward into the next one. I like what uh, Stephen Guy Bray quoted in chapter three. Stephen Guy Bray, who is very much a page poet, just came out with a, no, a new book, like literally this month, this week, came out with a new book called Line Endings in Renaissance Poetry. It's from Anthem Press. It is published 2022. I found his introduction and then his chapter three on enjambment to be particularly helpful or at least intriguing. Um, even as he is writing as a page poet, it's very intriguing reading for a stage poet. And uh, he, like us, argues that a line of verse is created by the intentional placement of a line ending. And hence, this entire book is looking at three different reasons for line endings. In chapter three, he looks at enjambment, and he begins with a quote from Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick's A Poem is Being Written from the book Tendencies. And we're going to quote Sedgwick here. We're quoting Guy Bray, <laughs> quoting Sedgwick. Uh, Kosofsky Sedgwick, possibly. Uh, anyway, quoting Sedgwick, saying Vis that she visualized enjambment very clearly, not only as the poetic gesture of straddling lines together syntactically, but also pushing apart lines. So basically, enjambment can either rush you on to the next line, or it can kind of disjoint. Elsewhere in the introduction of uh, Stephen Guy Bray's book on page five, he says that he sees two primary kinds of line ending, a turning or a cutting. So the, the word verse actually comes from the word turn, as in vice versa, as in reverse, inverse, verses. So as we've talked about, a line of verse has sort of a shroom through of thought and then some sort of turn when verse is being used effectively. And so with both Guy Bray and Cedric are saying that an enjammed line 
either turns you into or rushes you into, sort of slams you into the next line, which then expands the idea, or it can cut. It can disjoint line A from line B, so you get a sense of antithesis of the word against the word, uh, which I think is probably why it, verse just in its very formatting encourages um, poetry and rhetoric and, and things like that because it, it has that turning or that this thing against that thing. Uh, verses or verses, if you will, but dum dum. <laughs> but with an enjambment, I think it's really interesting to see then, and, and I hope in this little mini series, you will see and hear how an enjambment can um, performatively give a little like motorized speed bump. Do you remember those? <laughs> those like toy cars and you would make a big long track but every once in a while if you had a long track you had to put in this one piece that would sort of rev up and give motion to the car so that they could continue on again and that's kind of what the line break does because the line break is both the end of the line and the beginning of the line both of them are or can be important um more more to say about that another time. And we kind of did say that in one of our shakes notes. So go back and listen to those. Um, but enjambment, I find, can be that thing where like I, I, I go through the line, I swoom through the line, I get to an enjambment as a performer of the, the if it's a good, helpful enjambment, and I feel it sort of vroom through to the next line. And that's a good, helpful enjambment. Um, sometimes the enjambment stops me. The enjambment can absolutely change my breath, as we will hear later. Um, so different types of enjambments that I've noticed. Uh, there sometimes is enjambment, and we see this a lot, and I think a lot of you have done this, and I've done this too, when you're, quote unquote, trying to sound like Shakespeare, which really means you're trying to you're trying to master iambic pentameter blank verse. So you cut at 10, maybe cut at 11. Ooh, fancy. Um, but you're cutting on meter. You're cutting to say that this is a measure of music. I, 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 still, I still hold that I think that's, that's kind of weak sauce. I think you're missing out on giving some really good information. Uh, your enjambment doesn't always vroom me through. Uh but it is a reason for an enjambment is when you are highlighting that you have a strict repeated meter and um, you presumably want people to feel that. Um, I can talk more about that. I probably should talk more about that another time. Why it's, when it's weak sauce and when it's powerful sauce. Then we have sometimes, uh, so I would call metered Enjambments, when you cut on the 10 or you cut, as it were, on five, five strong beats, I would call that unguided enjambment because I don't know whether you want me to just like skip the bar line and and pretend there is, you know, treat it like page poetry and not perform the enjambment at all. Um, and then I would suggest there's guided or emphasized enjambment, and that's where we might italicize the end of a word or the end of a line or the beginning of the next line, where we might use a lot of punctuation, dashes, ellipses, 
um, things like that to to let basically to use our formatting, um, capitalization, things of that ilk, to let the actor know how to perform the enjambment. So we can have unguided enjambments and we have guided enjambments. Um, then, and we could talk, and we will be talking way more about enjambments. So enjambments also either like push us into the next bit or they hold us back. Then we have silence. Um, reason to cut the line, especially in drama, is for silence. Um, I know personally, I often use dashes um, to kind of mean take a hitch breath here. Uh, so this part is 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 very fluid, right? There are very few things that are going to be agreed upon by all the playwrights at the moment. We are very much in a nascent stage of how do we write our spoken music. But for me, for example, I'll often put dashes at the ends of things, which means it, it connects, but but kind of like be aware of your breath, maybe a hitch breath, maybe a gasp something, or just sort of, yeah, um, re-energize. Do that sort of Mattel car re-energizing with a dash. Um, ellipses, wherein the character may trail off. And there's several reasons for ellipses. Um, I find the trailing off... Uh, Either a sort of the lack of thought or you're searching for the next thought often happens, which then can create a really interesting coming into the next line because we ended the previous line trying to find the next line because of ellipses. That's the three dots after. Um, it could be because of a crossed out line, which is something that we have started to develop where you put it in square brackets and then you cross out the words in the line and the person, the performer, still keeps thinking those words. So the beats of silence sort of happen and you get the, the ouvriel, the performative energy from the actor, but silently. So uh, you can have a stop because the words are there, but the actor, you're telling them not to perform it because of a crossed out line. You can use white space, wherein... Uh, this is especially helpful if you're doing eidetic stickic verse or highly metered verse, highly strictly repeated meter verse. So if you're doing iambic pentameter, um, if you put white space anywhere in that block of a rectangle, uh, you are inviting silence. And that can be at the end of a line. If you have a partial line that begins on the left and do we fill it with silence? Do we stretch out the words? What do we do? Um, you can have it at the beginning of the line. You could put the words in the middle and let people choose all sorts of different choices about how to use dynamic white space, but as a way to stop the verse. Going on, you can use stage directions to stop the verse. I do think stage directions are different from silence and white space. I think stage directions are their own types of formatting. So... You can, for example, put in a bunch of white space between one person's line in a soliloquy and then white space, white space, white space, white space, and their next line, which we have seen uh, in many. Take a look, for example, in Caden Musser's work, and you can go listen to that interview with Caden Musser. Um, you can do that, or you can do the pinter thing and put in beat, pause, <laughs> silence and it's 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 the equivalent that is a stage direction 
And I think the reason why uh, you would put in white space for silence as a reason to stop speaking, end of a line, um, just the white space in, is more up to the interpretation of the performers and putting in beat or pause or silence, um, and particularly if you give a note, lets them know sort of how long that is. It's the equivalent of saying andante, which means walking pace, versus 100 beats per minute, which is put on your metronome and exactly do it to this. And there are different reasons for doing either. But stage direction, the other thing you can do and listen back to um, season two and um, stage direction as text with my own Table Round and Siege Perilous is that stage direction can also give the actor movement and movement itself can be text, although done kind of in silence, or I should say lingual silence, but it's not visual silence. Um, so stage direction is something that can be your next line of text and that is a silence. And then there is interruption. Um, the end of a line could end because you're interrupted. Because again, we're not talking page poetry, we're talking stage poetry. And soliloquies can be interrupted as we looked at in the last episode with Gawain. Um, or is it the last episode? Sorry, two episodes ago with Gawain. Uh, soliloquies can be interrupted, lines can be interrupted. This happens all the time. So interruption is a reason for an intentional line break, okay? So to go over our five sort of groups, tentative groups at the moment, and tell me what you think. Um, we have end-stopped lines. We have enjammed lines, silent-stopped lines, stage direction, stopped or full lines, and interrupted lines. Reasons for... To, to put a line break. And it's interesting to note too, something we're going to be talking about a little bit today, is that different types of verse invite different reasons to put in a line break. What do I mean by that? Well, as mentioned before, when we're doing, for example, iambic pentameter blank verse, frequently the reason to put in the line break or, or the like supreme triumph, not the other word, <laughs> card reason, the supreme reason to put in a line break is to keep the pentameter, is to keep the two over five. Two beats, five, or sorry, two, two syllables, five beats. That's what I mean. Um, and then if you happen to get performance happy reasons that, you know, where the end of the line, the beginning of the line, the line break is performable, Woohoo! Uh, but I, I would suggest that eidetic stickic verse is a kind of morphic verse. It is making a rectangle, right? And what I've noticed with morphic verse, if we're writing on a circle, if we're writing on a star, if we're writing on a heart, is that the line break can also, there's sort of the danger or the, the, the primary reason you're putting a line break is to make the shape on the page but is the line break still performable? Does it still give information? Is it is it still doing double duty, not only of creating the shape, but of being something that an actor can perform, that they get information 
about the character, about how to breathe, about what they're feeling, depending on what is, you know, the end or the beginning of the line, what that tension is. Um, I find that protean stichic verse, that's what we mostly see in modern dramas. So that's line, 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 line. Uh, each line can end wherever it ends. And I find that those lines tend to be almost always one of the forms of end stopped. Whether it, I mean, it, it, let me put it this way. They put the line break almost always in order to force a hesitation or a breath. It is very schwumpf based um, insofar as all the things on that line are definitely what the character is thinking all at once, all together, all on one line. So it's extremely performable, but it's also just as much as iambic pentameter or any morphic verse, um, well, I should say any eidetic verse, it's still very regular. Um, and so you, they frequently in, in protean uh, stichic verse which is slave play, which is, um, gosh, uh, Doll's House Part Two, which is a lot of these different plays. Um, they actually, they, I don't see that much enjambment. They kind of miss out on using enjambment well. The same way that, but like for different reasons that if you're writing in an epic pentameter blank verse, you might also be missing out on using enjambment well. It's very odd. Uh, so we will be taking a look at at both of those today. Um, so you can hear sort of what happens. With atotosic verse, I find it does similar things to the protean where because you're free to sort of put it however you want, um, people still tend to, to break on breath um, controlling the music in that way. Not necessarily end stopped. There can be some really interesting enjambments, but sort of end on breath. So, so that's kind of interesting. We're going to take a little break. And then when we come back, um, we're going to start by actually kind of learning what not to do. Um, which is we're going to look at eidetic stichic verse, in this case, iambic pentameter verse. And, uh, we're going to be looking at end stopped lines and how it just kind of like the sameness of it. We're going, if we're talking in this little mini section of writing and creating character about creating a pattern and then breaking a pattern, today we're going to be looking at just the creation of patterns. And in this case, creation of patterns which then are not broken. Next episode, we're going to start looking more at what happens if we create a pattern then break a pattern, okay? So today we're going to look at what is frequently done, which is the establishment of a pattern through line break that doesn't vary and what that sounds like. Next time, we're going to be listening to the establishment of a pattern and then how it is broken for that character and then recreated and then broken and then recreated and broken and recreated and broken. Okay? Good? Good. All right. Let's take a little break and I will see you on the other side of uh, this advertisement. Don't fast forward. We're amazing. Listen up. <laughs> Hello, friends. Are you 
one of the many playwrights who are among our listeners. If so, we are actively soliciting you to send us one of your soliloquies so that we can have it read out. If you've heard our season two, then you know that particularly for any playwright who has not had their work published, who is in the middle of still writing, um, the Velvet Gloves are going to be on. So you will get a little critique, uh, but you also get lots of love. So you can send those to Hamlet to Hamilton, all written out, all one word. So Hamlet, it's not the number two, it's T-O, Hamlet to Hamilton at gmail.com. We want to see your soliloquies. We're really excited to see them. And uh, we hope to do this towards the end, uh, or at least in the second or third module of this season, so that we can highlight you, our listeners. Send it to hamlettohamilton at gmail.com, and we look forward to reading your brilliant work. All right, and welcome back. So we're going to take a look first uh, we're going to walk through King Arthur's speeches, <laughs> a little a little taste of season two, from one of the plays that we did not do because there was no Lancelot in it. This is The Tragedy of Arthur by Arthur Phillips, the version of the play that I have, because it's a, a book that's in, or sorry, it's a play that's in a book, in a novel. Um, it is copyright 2011, Arthur Phillips. Um but 2012 from Random House. Uh, and I do believe this is the first printing. Okay. So what you need to know about this particular book, this particular play, is that uh, Arthur Phillips, this, he is a novelist. He is not a playwright. And as far as I understand, this is his only play that he wrote. Um, he wrote it for publication, although it was then performed by the Guerrilla Shakespeare Project in 2012, I believe. Um, the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. I think it was the end of 2012, though. Um, in New York City, where they did the play, but they also combined it with the book that's around the play. Um, it was very good. It was very interesting. It was also very painful and very enlightening. Um, I did write to Arthur Phillips uh, right around that time and asked him whether he was doing any other verse plays. And it looks like this is the only verse play that he has ever done or that he intends to do. The book around the play, the novel around the play, is the idea that the main character, who is the author himself, a fictionalized version of Arthur Phillips, that his parents die and they're going through the stuff in in their dad's attic, I believe. And they come across this lost Shakespeare play called The Tragedy of Arthur. And then it's the question of its authenticity and so on and so forth. Um, the reason why I say this is because Arthur Phillips purposely was trying to make this sound or feel like very early Shakespeare. So right around the time of him writing his other history plays, which were some of his earliest plays, including Henry VI, 1, 2, and 3, Richard III, and Richard II. Um, those are sort of the inspiration textual-wise for, for Arthur Phillips' plays. So the majority of this play is in extreme iambic pentameter with almost no variation whatsoever, 
extreme end stopped as well. Um, and I think you're going to hear that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through King Arthur. Um, I'm not going to really worry about any of the context of the play because our question is, what variances do we feel, if any, in the character of Arthur when the playwright is purposely refusing textual variation? So you're going to hear nothing but the same strict repeated meter of iambic pentameter. You're going to hear, I believe, quite a lot of end stops. And by end stops, I don't just mean full stops. I am also talking about phrasal stops, about partial stops, things like that. We'll be keeping an eye out for enjambments and seeing what they do uh, when we come across them. I, by and large, am going to be doing Arthur's soliloquies, of which there are many, actually. But I'm also going to do a little bit of Arthur's very first scene, a little bit of Arthur's very last scene, so that we can hear if there's any textual variations and therefore character changes because we're looking for patterns and then hopefully we're breaking patterns unless the character doesn't change because we're in a sitcom maybe. <laughs> All right, so let's take a listen. So this is Act 1, Scene 1, The Tragedy of Arthur by Arthur Phillips. And the character of Arthur is uh, speaking to the Duke of Gloucester. This is among the very first things that Arthur says, and he says, I have a conscience of a nothing, Duke, and ere I float upon remembered days or lose a stone to that hog's truffling chaps, I'll take me down the hill to where she droops and dream soft or of princes or of swains, which e'er Mab soweth that all ear, now to her, and Arthur exits. Okay, so that's one of the first things Arthur says. Every single thing is end stopped. Um... Mostly partial stops with, uh, what do we have? We have a period, a comma, a comma, a comma, a period, a period exclamation point. All right. Going on, we start act one, scene five, with uh, Arthur Solus. Arthur has just been made king. And this is what he says. So on a sudden am I made a king. There is no boy who'd have it otherwise. To step from forest games and don true crown, but London's gamesters mark it ten to one that Arthur balance still this crown on head, or head on neck ere summer's come and blown. Those numbers tickle me. I'll Gloucester send to play a thousand marks that I will fall. E'en now do amorous picked in German high from north and east to visit me at court, and finger of my own hat on this my seat. There's something in this wooden chair calls out to men of vaulting ween but little wit. What, dare I hold myself above them? Nay. I know I have no right to wear this crown. I'll contradict no pope who calls me king, but in this privy council kings speak troth. No right have I, no higher claim than loth. A bastard I from bloody tyrant sire. Unkingly too am I from the angry mood in which I was conceived. Some kindnesses neglected, mother forced in loveless bed. And from my part in this bed's play they tell, my monstrous, sure, my monstrous getting surely cursed the land, which God will ceaseless vend with pox and drought. What action might I take to ease this doom? I strike my back at butchered Cornwall's tomb? 
Still I the usurper am, by father damned. O Arthur, coward boy, ungrateful churl, say who art thou that acts as solemn judge of own creator, shoves him off thy dam, with pitying heart unburst thy thankless self. What king was he to spawn such king as I? What king he was now lives within my skin. I bear his blood, his wit, his faults, his sin, save he did crave a kingdom for his own, while crown unsought now search now perches up on me. This glistening ring was plucked, O oh, my father's corpse. Have I no will in me to venge his death? He murdered fell, whilst I did weave up stems into a crown to anoint a maiden's brow. That circlet place, was she in some sort changed? Nay, nay, nor can a crown make me a king. What king am I to be? Not wise, not bold. My kingdom ought to be the wood and bank, the vast infinity of summer eaves. But here... I talk as if I might now choose. Cheer up thy mewling self. Put doubt to the axe. Here, search this glass. What kingly side is there? By right or no, this cap doth suit us well. What foes will come, let come. But no man tell that Arthur yielded ere he fought to death. For that was his bestowed by father's breath. End of scene. Uh, interesting. <laughs> it's kind of hard to say. <laughs> Like, there were large parts where I was kind of blacking out as an actor. I'm like, it, it, it's a lot of the same. Um, there was some interesting stuff to play, and there were more enjammed lines. I found myself very grateful of, like, the early enjammed lines, such as, those numbers tickle me, all Gloucester send to play a thousand marks that I will fall. E'en now the amorous picks in German high from north and east to visit me at court, just because I got that sense of like, bah, like it was on high, for example. E'en now do amorous picks in Germans high from north and east to visit me at court. And I got that Mattel car sort of feeling. Um, but then there was a lot of end stopped. What action might I take to ease this doom? I stripe my back at butchered Cornwell's tomb, and those are even broken with rhyme. Still I the usurper am by father damned. O Arthur, coward boy, ungrateful churl, say who thou art that acts as solemn judge of own creator shoves him off thy dam. And I got confused there. I'm like, what? So we have all these end stops and we're end stopped at a time when I'm supposed to feel like, oh, I'm so angry at myself, but the meter hasn't changed. So the verse itself is literally not broken. And then... I just get confused by this in jam line. Say who thou art that acts as solemn judge of own creator. Just, I feel like I'm missing a word here because he's so intent on keeping it at 10 syllables. Shoves him off thy dam. With unpitying heart unbursts thy thankless self. I am so confused by that sentence. Anyway, uh, and that's uh, an enjammed line, a comma, and a question mark. And then, okay, I'm back. What king was he to spawn such a king as I? Great. But at the same time, it's it's such a perfect line. And yet I could feel that I'm supposed to be angry at my dad, but the line is so perfect and it's even end stopped that I'm like, I'm not human. <laughs> I'm a really good poetry machine. It's kind of interesting. Anyway, so on we go. Act two, scene two. And as you're listening, tell me if you are hearing changes in character. Okay. Now thick-walled York looms gray and cold above and bristles all along like porpentine with spears and bolts that sent out English flesh. 
my English friends, my English brothers now, you hear my voice's maiden call to arm, to urge you on to want from me no urging, mm, sorry, to urge you on who want from me no urging, and quicken ire of knights to martial wrath, who were born fighting men ere I was born, to lead you where you have already bled, but I have not. What king is this who calls? And York should be the first and last of me. Let no man say I was not Uder's son, nor valued more than he this bubble life. But of our foemen, this cannot be said. Who waits for us within, fell Englishman? The Saxon pride sets sail or humbers tide, and then could join to Pictish treachery, but for but to cower spent and quaking shy. I am so sorry. This is so hard to read. Okay, let me go back. Let no man say I was not Uder's son, comma, nor valued more than he this bubble life, period. But of our foemen, this cannot be said, period. Who waits for us within, fell Englishman, question mark. This Saxon pride set sail or humbers tide and then conjoined to Pictish treachery, for but to cower spent and quaking shy, portcullis fast behind the walls of York, as guilty lads will seek their mother's skirts when older boys they vex come for revenge. But Arthur's at the gate, tis Britain's fist that hammers now upon the shivering boards, and English blood be thin as watery wine, then sheathe we now our swords and skulk away, with Saxon's language tripping from our lips. You'd con the invader's tongue, absit omen. Let's school them then in terms of English arms, decline and conjugate hard works, but hark! She sighs the gentle pleading that we come in. Now wait we n now wait no more to save her nobles in and pull those Saxon arms off English skin. Frack me! Okay, Monica and friends, I know we wanted to talk about line endings, but sometimes you just need to put words in an order that are, is possible to say. I feel like I have rocks in my mouth. <laughs> I feel like I was stum like I am water stumbling over rocks. It was so hard to say. It was so hard to concentrate. I I get the point. I get what we're saying. It's kind of a Crispin's Day speech, but it is so hard to say. I got to be honest. I can't even focus on the line breaks because the words themselves are so hard to say. So I guess that is another thing that you need to keep in mind. You got to have words that you could say for the line breaks to mean anything because otherwise you you just feel like blah, 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 blah. Um, But I was noticing again that there was a lot, it, it would be a lot of, it, it, yeah, it's interesting. It's a lot of end stopped, like full end stopped, question mark, comma, comma, period, period, question mark. And then all of a sudden, it's and jammed, like open and jammed, unguided and jammed, humbers tied, pictish treachery, both which really difficult to say, quaking shy, much better, walls of York, okay, mother skirts, good, vex come for revenge, difficult to say, tis Britain's fist, and then period, comma, skulk away, period, okay. Um... I didn't on the enjambment feel a Mattel pushing through. Um, maybe you would if you perform it. Try it out. Um, and I was really feeling stopped, like overstopped by the end stops. Again, I, I think this is a great thing, particularly for poets to think about. 
um, you kind of want to care for, and we're, we'll be talking about more more of this in this series. But you want to pick and choose when you have a line of perfect and stopped verse, because the audience will hear it. But if you have a lot of them while someone just reading it, maybe like, oh, that's so clever. Oh, look, in 10 syllables, let's say, um, you were able to get sort of a perfectly balanced line with all the sort of ornamentation on it. It's pal- practically a palindrome. Um but that's not always how humans speak. And so if you've got a great one, you want to like let it drop in. We're going to be looking at this later with Richard II, as well as with Charles III, interestingly enough. Um, but when you have a series of them, it can sometimes get tiring as an actor. So for example, here we go. Um, My English friends, my English brothers now, you hear my voice's maiden call to arms. I really wish it were maiden voices called arms, but okay. I urge you on who want from me no urging, and quicken ire of knights to martial wrath, who were born fighting men ere I was born, to lead you where you have already bled, but I have not. But I have not is like the best thing I have said thus far. Even though the other lines are beautifully, to urge you on who want for me, no urging. That's a beautiful line of verse, but it actually isn't urgent. And part of why it isn't urgent is because it's so perfect. Okay? It's perfectly balanced. It's partially stopped with a comma. And because of the phrasing. And um, it sits on the page beautifully. It doesn't sit in me as urgently. So, I mean, I think if you want urgency, that's when you would be in jamming, actually. Uh, And it might be really interesting. I I am. I'm going to pause right now because, spoiler, uh, the character of Arthur is all this way. Let's take a moment. Let's look at that. Let's look at that St. Crispin's Day speech and let's see how the phrasing goes and how... The, the end stops go. This isn't what I was going to do, but I think this is more important. Let's take a look at Shakespeare's St. Crispin's Day speech. Here we go. All right. We are looking at Henry V by William Shakespeare. Act four, scene three, the Crispin's Day speech. It's just as long as the one that we just read from Arthur Phillips, The Tragedy of Arthur. Um, and we're going to take a quick look at, at why this one works. Let's take a look at why this one works. Okay. So this is around line 20. I'm reading from the Folger Shakespeare online. And Henry says, uh, first of all, his speech begins as a half line answering the line beforehand. So this is an address. This is not a soliloquy. Uh, This is an address. Uh, Westmoreland has just said, oh, that we now had here but one 10,000 of those men in England that that do no work today. Oh, wow. Already, like, the vowels are just easier, even though I'm stumbling, like, if I stumble, it's because my mouth has rocks from the previous speech. Sorry, babe. That's all right. That's all right. We've all done it. We've all written stuff that is difficult to say. Every single person has. Even Shaky Baby has. I was looking at Ulysses from Troilus and Cressida today. Uh, presuming presuming Shakespeare wrote those rough, rough, to, rough speeches to say. Anyway, so King Henry finishes the line of verse with, What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland? No, my fair cousin. 
If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country's loss, and if to live, the fewer men the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee wish not one man more. By Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me not if men my garments wear, such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. No faith, my cuz, wish not a man from England. God's peace, I would not lose so great an honor as one man more, methinks, should share from me. For the best hope I have, oh, do not wish one more. Rather, proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse." We will not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. And that shall see this day and live old age will yearly vigil feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot. But he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry, the king, Bedford, and Exeter, Warwick, and Talbot, Salisbury, and Gloucester be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son. And Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition, and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheaps whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. Oh, God, it's good. Oh, my God. Oh, Bill. Oh, you're just... Oh, oh, my gosh. It's like not water trying to squeeze through rocks. It's just... verdant water creating just tropical, lush foliage flowering. (gasps) The open vowels, the consonants that want to go from one to another. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry, guys. All right. Sorry. 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 I'll pull it back together. Okay. So what are some of the things that he did with line endings? (laughs) Well, the sad thing is Shakespeare's doing what Arthur Phillips is attempting to emulate. Arthur Phillips is emulating pretty well the the line ending of full stops to enjambments. Um, he's actually emulating it fairly well. Uh, where what? But some of the things that he's missing, <laughs> some of what he's missing is not so much regarding the end stoppage, although we'll look at that in a second. Uh, so much as vowels and consonants, really, and and the mouth wanting to go from one place to another. So, all right. So when we sing, um, for example, it is much easier to get from one note to another that are very close to each other. So, um, 
it's much easier to do, <clears throat> at least for me in some ways to do it, like, Io sono dolcile, so rispetuosa. Because all the notes are like really close to each other. It it takes a different sort of power <laughs> to leap <laughs> from note to note, such as, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm, I am not warmed up and I've just been speaking for the past hour and a half to you. Um, it is It is more difficult to do or it takes different muscle clature to do. Oh, mio babino caro, mi piace bello, bello, vendare porta rosa. Right, okay, so that, that leap is, is, is rough, man. Um, we don't have, when we're speaking our verse, we don't have pitch in quite the same way. But it, even when we're singing, there's um, we have light vowels, we have dark vowels, we have consonants, you know, that that go from the guttural to the plosive, and um, alliteration can really help things because I can I can keep uh, I don't know cutting glass. Well, it sort of changes things. You know what I'm saying? Um, if if I keep things in one of the the consonant families i can go through them very quickly um and there's so there like i was saying there's something about um do, 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 do. you hear my voice's maiden call to arms you so i'm just going to do the consonants this is um tragedy of arthur arthur phillips you, so like it, it it is it is all over the place whereas if it were oh god okay so i'm like you hear my you hear my mewling maiden called arm no that's terrible okay you hear my virgin voices call to arms. It it so much easier. Virgin voices, and that gets me to the sort of call to arms. Um, maiden voices call to arms. I I could feel it rocking back and forth on my tongue in an extremely unpleasant manner. Um. Versus, let's see. Gosh, um, what's he that wishes so? The first line. I get to stay with wah, wah. My cousin Westmoreland, I get to stay with wah. No, my fair cousin. And um, we got cousin to cousin. So like, I am being guided. If we are marked to die, we are enough. And all of the, the vowels are very open. To do our country loss and if to live, l, l. And we just came from k, k. Um, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. That's actually a little bit difficult. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. Go, wah, I, so we're, we're keeping with the wah. Um, by Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I, I who feed, doth feed upon my cost. So we're still keeping it, right? With some wah, is what we're, we're getting. Um, so I, I know you asked me to talk about line breaks, but the line break doesn't matter if I cannot say the line. Line break doesn't matter if I cannot say the line. 
Um, some things that also work, though, for Crispin is I want to look particularly at the end here. So we have some beautiful lines just that, that just sit there, right? Such as, this day is called the Feast of Crispian. Full line. And you can feel a drop, like we talked about two episodes ago. In fact, many people will start the speech there rather than starting it at the top because it is a long speech. Um, so to have a, just a perfect line of text, this day is called the Feast of Crispian. Boom, done, end stopped. And then we go into two enjammed lines. So it's basically three lines make up a single thought. So let's just look at this. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. So that's the whole sentence. It goes over three lines of text. Safe home is the break. Named is the break. And then, uh, again, we have three more lines that all make up one sentence. He that shall see this day and live old age will yearly end, but we have a partial stop there with a comma, but also with a phrase. Will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors in Jammin and say, tomorrow is St. Crispin. And I think there definitely is a desire to run that middle line, which is fully enjammed, fully open, unguided, and jammed. Will yearly f on this vigil feast his neighbors and say, and then it's in quotation marks, tomorrow is St. Crispian. Um, so you get that Mattel sense. And we have these two almost uh, stanzas of three lines. He that outlives, he that shall see this day. Okay, so we're looking at line beginnings as well. Um, then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars. And that's, so we have a three, we have a three, and then we have a single line of text. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars. And then we change our thoughts. That's why we had an end of text, because it's old men forget, yet all shall be forgot. But he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. And remember with advantages is and jammed. So we're having a nice mix and we're using enjambment to shove me through the next thing, to give me that energy and I'm getting it. And if it's um, a, a paused stop, um, so here we go. Okay, then shall our names, and that's a, a part, it's like a new thought halfway through the line. Um, it's a partial end stop because it's a comma. So then shall our names familiar in his mouth as household words. So we're pausing. It's more about phrases. And that's why the, the stops, the, the breaks are happening is because of phrases. Then shall our names, end of the phrase, familiar in his mouth as household words, end of the phrase. And then we have a list of the people, which you can sort of play it however you want, but you have Harry the King, comma, Bedford and Exeter, comma, end of line, Warwick and Talbot, comma, Salisbury and Gloucester, comma. So again, we have that sort of bringing together of lines even over the line break. Be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. Um, and then this story shall the good man teach his son. And um, so why does a with you we have? Okay, so here we go. Then we get into the next sort of stanza and it's all partial stops, comma, 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 dash, semicolon. And then enjammed, 
comma, semicolon, and jammed, comma, and jammed, period. Let me just give you the end stops again from this point on. Because uh, we're going to go from this story shall the good man teach his son. So we're going to have comma, 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 dash, semicolon, open, comma, semicolon, open, comma, open, period. You could even sort of feel that rhythm, right? So this is what it sounds like with those breaks. Realizing as well with Shakespeare, this is the Folger, this is the editor. There's a lot of question of sort of who gets to choose <laughs> what the end, what the line break looks like for Shakespeare. It's very nebulous, but this is the music that we're given in this transcription of it from the Folger, which is, this story shall the good man teach his son, comma, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by, comma, from this day to the ending of the world, comma, but we in it shall be remembered, dash, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, semicolon, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile, comma, this day shall gentle his condition, semicolon, and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here, comma, and hold their manhoods cheap walls any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. And if you don't breathe on the enjambments, you actually have to push through muscularly as an actor to just read two lines of text, but to have that sort of Mattel in between. Um, so that's, I mean, the everything is working together, including the placement of the line breaks at the end. Let's go back to um, Arthur Phillips' version of uh, of the end of the Crispin's Day speech. This is taking it from about line 22. Again, this is Act 2, Scene 2 of The Tragedy of Arthur by Arthur Phillips. And uh, we're starting with, But Arthur is at the gate, tis Britain's fist that hammers now upon the shivering boards. And English blood be thin as watery wine, then sheathe we now our swords and skulk away, with Saxon language tripping from our lips. You'd con the invader's tongue, absit o men. Let school them then in terms of English arms, decline and conjugate hard words, but hark! She sighs with gentle pleading that we come. Now wait no more to save her, nobles, in and pull those Saxon arms off English skin. I still am hung up on it's just freaking hard to say. Um... But these are the line endings. Um, but Arthur's at the gate is the beginning part of the line with an exclamation point, but the line itself is enjammed. Tis Britain's fist, enjammed, that hammers now upon the shivering boards, period. And English blood be thin as watery wine, comma, then sheathe we now our swords and skulk away, enjammed, with Saxon language tripping from our lips, period. You'd con the invader's tongue, question mark, absit o men, period, but that's all one line. Let's school them then in terms of English arms, comma, decline and conjugate hard words, dash but hark, exclamation point. She sighs with gentle pleading that we come, exclamation point. Now wait no more to save her, comma, nobles, comma, in, comma, and put those Saxon arms off, and pull those Saxon arms off English skin, exclamation point. So hard to say. Um... I'm being stopped a lot, actually, at the end, rather than getting to 
For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves a curse they were not here, and hold their manhood's cheeps whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. I can feel my breath getting, like, excited because of where the the ends of the lines are placed. But here, at and <laughs> there are how many exclamation points? One... Two, three, four, four exclamation points in Arthur Phillips, no exclamation points in the Folger editing of St. Crispin. Okay, let's read Arthur again. But Arthur's at the gate. Tis Britain's fist that hammers now upon the shivering boards. And English blood be thin as watery wine, then sheathe we now our swords and skulk away with Saxon language tripping from our lips. Doesn't trip, my dude. That was so hard to say. With Saxon language tripping from our lips, you'd con the invader's tongue, absido men. Let's school them then in terms of English arms. Decline and conjugate hard words, but hark! She sighs with gentle pleading that we come. Now wait no more to save her, nobles. In and pull those Saxon arms off English skin. Actually, part of what makes this difficult is I've got so many full end stops, but I also have so many full end stops in the middle of the line. So I keep being paused rather than da 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 I'm so out of breath because I keep talking, I keep talking, I keep talking. You went over the first line, I'm talking, I'm talking. This one is like and then the the consonants are also tripping me. Um so it's interesting that the the full stops are getting in the way, I would suggest, of of getting that rousing feeling. So there's one of the answers. Uh be very specific with your end stops. Um, an audience is 1,000% here and end stop. And for us, that's where we're going to end today. Next time, we're going to be picking up with some extremely modern plays that also use end stops. We're going to be talking more about the idea of how enjambment uh, can push you through and then you can have a line of perfect verse and how that sort of works in a crystalline way, also with a modern play. And then we're going to be getting into, uh, again, is this series the actual question of let's look at characters whose line endings the perp or the line endings patterns change and that indicates a change in character but i think i think we'll stop here for today with that comparison of of two kings using a combination of end stopped and uh and enjammed lines none of none of them using silence um and and just a reminder that as much as we're going to be looking at patterns and at the placement of a line break, your actor still has to say all the words on the line. So you do need to, to get that right. And so go back and listen maybe to the last episode about meter, particularly if you're trying to do something with a bit of a lilt. Um, think and try saying it out loud say just the vowels and see if it's easy for your tongue to get from one vowel to another. Say just the consonant, see if it's easy to get from one to the other. If it's difficult, do consider some alliteration or some assonance or some consonants. Those really help an interpreter to say things. Consider, are we looking for very open vowels? Uh, We love an open vowel. It makes things easier to say, (laughs) right? Um, 
So do consider that. I'm I'm sorry. I wish you could just look at at one piece of the tool boudoir and leave everything else alone. But it all does start working together. Just like when you're singing, um, it it vowels will affect whether you can sing a note at a certain pitch. It's very hard to sing a diphthong really high up, for example. Uh, these things all start colliding and and colliding into each other. But I hope that was interesting. What do you think? Take a look at your own. Take a look particularly at your own enjambed lines and see whether they do the sort of Mattel um, race car revitalization, if you're seeing any of that. And uh, let me know. And we are going to continue on with the question of the placement of line endings and what that does to character in this mini series as part of our greater soliloquy and a character exploration. Thank you for all that you do. Join us over on patreon.com backslash Hamlet to Hamilton or on the social media of your choice and drop us a line. Let us know what you think. Drop us some of your verse. Let us know how it's working out. And uh, we will talk to you next time. Bye now. Hamlet to Hamilton Exploring Verse Drama is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. Special thanks to Stars and Scansion patrons, Ben Claude, Madeline Farley, and Jasmine Nyack. If you'd like to become our patron and get different goodies, you can join us over on patreon.com slash Hamlet to Hamilton. Hamlet to Hamilton is hosted by Emily C.A. Snyder with audio engineering and sound design by Colin Kovarik. This podcast is part of the Turn to Flesh Productions audio network. You can learn more by going to hamlettohamilton.com or turntoflesh.org. If you liked this episode, please like, share, comment, subscribe. You know what to do. You can follow us on Twitter at hamlet2hamilton with the numeral 2 in between. Or use the hashtag hamlettohamilton or h2h with the numeral 2. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks' time as we continue exploring verse drama.